hello and welcome to EU History Explained. In this new series, we will try to make sense of today's European Union by looking at its history. We are nowadays very much used to hearing about politics being shaped in Brussels. But have you ever wondered how the European Union came to be? That is what we will look at in this first episode. The modern idea of a united Europe goes back a very long time from the philosophers of the 17th and 18th centuries to more recent theorizations after the First World War. Already then, a number of ideas were launched, such as the pan-European movement of Count Kudenhover Kalergi, or a proposal for a European Federation by French Foreign Minister Aristide Briand, or Western Church's call for the creation of United States of Europe, but none of them resulted in concrete political projects. The debate on a united Europe received a very strong push by the shock caused by the Second World War. A major contribution to this debate was given by three Italian thinkers confined by the fascist regime on the island of Ventotene. In their Ventotene Manifesto of 1941, Altiero Spinelli, Ernesto Rossi and Eugenio Colorni outline their vision of a federal Europe as a means to ensure peace. The key idea of the Federalists, as they were called, is that the existence of the nation-state has been the very cause of the war. For this reason, they see the elimination of the nation-state as a solution to prevent future wars. Two factors will be crucial in turning this integrationist ideas into a reality. The intuition of some key political figures and practitioners on the one hand, and the post-war international context, on the other hand, that is marked by the Cold War between the East and the West. So let's have a look at what is the context in Europe after the end of the Second World War. The eastern part of the continent is under the sphere of influence of the Soviet Union. Western Europe has both winners and losers of the war. As a result of losing the war, Germany suffers strong limitations to its national sovereignty, which makes the country naturally favorable to ideas of European integration that could allow it to regain part of their sovereignty and to reconnect with neighboring nations. Italy, another loser of the war, is trying to regain its place and legitimacy on the international scene. And the government that faces internally a very strong communist party is eager to anchor the country to the Western camp. France, for its part, is trying to regain its prestige after the humiliation of 1940. At the same time, it is wary of any regain of sovereignty, military autonomy or economic strength by Germany and will seek creative ways to curb it. The Benelux countries, Belgium, Luxembourg and the Netherlands, seek reconstruction, but also strive to have a say in the design of Europe's post-war order. The UK, finally, tries to cultivate its special relationship with the US, looks to the Commonwealth, but at the same time also tries to encourage ideas of European integration without really seeing itself as part of any of these projects. Against this backdrop, only with the start of the Cold War in 1947 
Will European integration cease to be a utopian vision and become a concrete political and economic project? The inception of European integration is marked by a number of separate projects running on three parallel but connected tracks. Economic cooperation, political cooperation and military cooperation that will have different degrees of success. The first concrete attempts at integration among European countries are strongly encouraged by the United States that has a keen interest in an integrated, prosperous and stable Europe to counter the Soviet threat. The first project follows the launch by the United States in 1947 of the Marshall Plan, a massive recovery plan for Europe that should, in the eyes of the Americans, make Europe a solid and prosperous bastion against Soviet expansion. The US decides to pledge these funds to their European allies on the condition that the Europeans will manage the funds jointly through an organization for European economic cooperation. But while representing an important precedent of economic cooperation, this organization will fall short of the American expectations of integrating European economies. In the same years, a political integration path is also developing. In 1948, encouraged by Winston Churchill, the city of The Hague in the Netherlands hosts a congress of all the movements for European unification. In The Hague Congress, different visions of a united Europe are confronted. A federalist vision that calls for overcoming nation-states and merging them into the United States of Europe, an intergovernmentalist vision that envisages a European confederation of sovereign nation-states and actually sees the cooperation as a way to strengthen the nation-state, and the neo-functionalist vision that advocates for integrating concrete individual sectors in hopes of achieving spillover effects to gradually obtain integration as a whole. This last vision tries, and will later succeed, to offer a solution to the deadlock caused by the incompatibilities between the Federalist and the Intergovernmentalist visions. Key representatives of this neo-functionalist vision are practitioners like Jean Monnet and politicians like Robert Schuman, who believe that Europe will not be made at once, but rather through concrete achievements. The richness and diversity of views is one of the reasons why the Hague Congress fails to achieve concrete results. Its main achievements will be the not very ambitious creation in 1949 of the Council of Europe that will only play a marginal role in the future developments of European integration. A third pillar of the inception of European integration is then military cooperation. Initially, this cooperation is not much more than just a military alliance among a number of European countries that is mainly aimed at convincing the US to keep guaranteeing Europe's security by showing them that Europeans are able to cooperate with each other. But in the following decade, cooperation in the military realm will evolve into something very different, leading to a failed attempt to create a fully-fledged European defence 
but we will look at this in the next episode. First, let's look at how the first track, economic integration, develops in the following years. We said earlier that France is worried about Germany regaining too much power too fast. At the same time, it is eager to foster its own economic and industrial recovery. And for this, German coal is a very important resource. We shouldn't forget that also the management of coal resources is one of the key elements of tension between France and Germany. A proposal that seems to solve both issues is put forward by French civil servant Jean Monnet and picked up by the foreign minister Robert Schuman. In his speech on 9th of May 1950, Robert Schuman proposes to pool together the management of the coal and steel resources of France and Germany under the control of a common supranational authority. This is considered to be the very founding step of a united Europe. And still today, the 9th of May is celebrated every year as Europe's Day. Schumann's plan is the incarnation of the neo-functionalist vision that concrete achievements will create a de facto solidarity between the European peoples and pave the way for a united Europe. Germany receives this proposal quite favorably as even if only partial, it still means a regain of sovereignty over, over its resources. We shouldn't forget that Germany had lost control over its resources. Soon more countries join in. Belgium, Luxembourg, the Netherlands and Italy. And the Treaty of Paris is eventually signed in 1951, establishing the European Coal and Steel Community. In this phase, the United Kingdom tends to favor its relationship with the Commonwealth and decides to remain outside of this initiative. The European Coal and Steel Community is based on a number of institutions. Most importantly, the high authority, the most powerful institution, which is an independent, supranational executive whose task is to ensure the smooth functioning of the common market of coal and steel. The most important feature and key innovation of this institution is the supranational character. But what does that mean? It means that states agree to cede part of their sovereignty to a common institution that has the power to enforce its decisions. Other institutions are then the Council of Ministers, which is the intergovernmental counterpart to the high authority, a common assembly, where delegates of the national parliament sit, and a code of justice, tasked with ensuring the application of the treaty. Finally, a consultative committee of social partners and ancestors of today's economic and social committee is also created. Born as an economic project, the European coal and steel community is a huge political success, as it seems to have solved decades of Franco-German rivalry, and by curtailing national sovereignty on resources that are crucial to make war, it has made war virtually impossible. But many questions still remain open, in particular the fate of the other integration tracks. In the next episode, we will continue our journey through European integration, 
and we will look at how the three tracks of cooperation developed further and which one was eventually successful. Thank you for listening to our podcast and don't forget to like, comment and subscribe to our channel. This podcast is co-funded by the Europe for Citizens programme of the European Union. The European Commission support for the production of this podcast does not constitute an endorsement of the contents which reflects the views only of the authors and the Commission cannot be held responsible for any use which may be made of the information contained therein. Thank you.